begin with this morning, I, I wanted to share a statistic that I had read from a 2015 Gallup poll. And I don't know how accurate this is. Obviously, it's four years ago. But it says that 9 out of 10 Americans say that they believed in God. The number was 89% of Americans polled believe in God. That doesn't mean that they're Christians. It just means that they believe God exists. But of that same poll, a follow-up question asked if they believe Satan exists. And only 61% said that they believe Satan exists. And therein is a problem. I mean, we absolutely believe that God exists. We, we do as Christians. We uh, base all of our faith and all of our eternity and all of our hope on that. And that Jesus Christ is God's Son. We believe that He is alive at the right hand of the Father today. That Jesus is coming back. We believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation through the Father but we also know that there is an enemy that exists, and Jesus spent a lot of time talking about that enemy. And so we obviously fall within that 90% of people who believe that God exists. But guys, every one of us today who has experienced spiritual warfare in our lives should also believe that the devil exists. And we're going to see him pop up in Nehemiah chapter 4. In fact, I want to read some verses with you in Nehemiah 4. I'm so sorry. I had to take allergy medicine this morning because of the change in weather, and it has made my mouth really dry, so please bear with me. In Nehemiah 4, beginning in verse 1. Um, and I don't know why my Bible, I haven't looked in this Bible, but it begins in verse, no, it's Nehemiah 1. I don't know why it says 3. It's a mis misprint. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He called them feeble Jews, and he said in the presence of his brother and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves, talking about the wall? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? And he's laughing as he's saying this. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? You can picture his arrogance as he's glaring down at the Jews from atop a hill. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And here we have a prayer. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to the plunder in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near came from all directions and said to us ten times. That's a great many times when the Bible says that. You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places I stationed the people by their clans with their swords their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, today I pray that as a people we are still under spiritual attack. Today, Lord, I believe that we will see some of the strategies that Satan uses against us as believers, against us as the church, against us, Lord God, as your people, just as he used against the Jews back when they were building the wall in the time of Nehemiah. Today, God, I pray that when taunts come against us, when ridicule, when intimidation, when the fiery arrows from the enemy are shot directly at us, God, that we wouldn't cower, that we wouldn't stop our work, that we wouldn't back down or bow down to our enemies, God, but instead we may fall to our knees as Nehemiah did and we would pray to you remembering how great and powerful and mighty you are, that you've delivered us from every one of our enemies in the past, that you've delivered us out of every problem, out of every mire that we've been sunk down in, out of the confusion and the anxiety of our hearts. And, Lord, this morning that we would be uplifted and encouraged, that we would be strengthened by your mighty hand. We can't do the work on our own, Lord, and we're surrounded by a great many enemies, the greatest of which is Satan. But, Lord, we know that in your power, by your might, through the strength of your Holy Spirit, by your word, by the promises that you've made, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And so, Lord, I pray that we take heart this morning and that we're encouraged that anybody in here who's being buffeted by the enemy this morning would walk out with their heads held high and victory in their grasp. Lord, that we would return to you, that we would thank you, and that you would help us to rebuild as well. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, Old British... Preacher, author G.K. Chesterton once said, The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and to love our enemies, probably because they are generally the same people. And we know that's true. I saw a sign in somebody's yard one day, and it was on the internet, but it said, it, it, the, the sign said, Don't rob this house. We're proud gun owners. Our neighbors are not. And so <laughs> go to their house. I think they were probably enemies, otherwise they wouldn't have done that. Uh, I think these words are true for us, but they were definitely true of Nehemiah. The neighbors of the Jews were their enemies. They had exploited and used the Jews for power and for wealth for a long time. And so it makes sense that as they start to get their act together, the Jews start to pray to God. And they say, we're finally, after 100 years, sick and tired of living in ruins and rubble. We're going to rebuild. That the enemy said, oh, boy. We've made a lot of money off these people. We could continue to make a lot of money off of these people. This is a good city. We've had our reign over it for a long time. And so the enemies came against the Jews. I said this last week at the end of uh, the sermon, but when things are going well, we should prepare for trouble because the enemy doesn't want to see the work of the Lord in our lives make any progress. And as long as the Jews were content with their sad lot in life, the enemy left them alone. They were complacent. They were a non-threat. But as soon as the Jews began to serve the Lord and give him glory, the enemy got active. It happens in our lives as well. Opposition, and this may sound like an oxymoron, but I'll tell you this. Opposition against us is usually a sign that God is blessing us. And I'll explain that a little better here. But I want you to remember this. Opposition is always an opportunity for us to grow in our spiritual walks and spiritual lives. Because it tests the metal of our faith. If you're weak or you really don't believe that God is powerful enough to deliver you, to heal you, to bless you, to provide for you, then what happens is a lot of times we just turn away from God, which is exactly what the enemy wants. The enemies wanted the Jews to stop working on the walls. If they did that, they win. The Jews lose. Today as believers, if we just quit working, if we give up, 
we lose sometimes before we've even started. You see, Satan tries to use adversity in our lives, the problems that we face, as weapons against us to destroy the work of the Lord that we're trying to do. But God uses adversity as a means of equipping us, of building us. You know, there are things right now in my life that I have faced and that you face that if I had faced them 15, 20 years ago, I would have been crushed by them. But because God has brought one thing after another and strengthened me through that and shown me how faithful he is and built me up in the faith and made me stronger as a man and as a man of God, now I can face those things a little easier. Whereas once before, my spiritual muscles were too weak to fight. Just as the same, just as the same is true with you. I love the words of Isaiah 54, and I know many of us have quoted these words before. Uh, let, me, let me share that quote by Winston Churchill because it's too good to pass up. A kite flies against the wind and not with it. Um, it is the pressure, the opposition that keeps it afloat. And very much in our lives, it's the same thing. Would you go, uh, Steve, to the, to the next uh, slide that's Isaiah fifty four seventeen, if we have that one up there? Um, I, man, I think it's before that. That's okay. I know we got knocked out this morning. Um, Power-wise. Let me read Isaiah 54. No weapon formed against you shall what? Prosper. He says, every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And our righteousness is from God, says the Lord. Isaiah 54, 17. I'm sorry, man. Um, Satan has certain strategies, and that's what we're going to talk about today that he uses against us. In Nehemiah chapters 4 through 6, there are nine strategies that are listed in these chapters. Chapter 4 contains four strategies that Satan uses against us. You know, uh, we used to have an accountability group, and I used to have guys in there with me, and we would talk. It was accountability to hold each other up, to sharpen iron. And one of the strategies, uh, and a couple of these guys were single guys, and they said that, um, you know, if they, if they were alone, for a certain period of time, or they had been watching something for a certain period of time, then their guards that they held up against um, their lusts were pretty much collapsed, and that they would find themselves falling into sin, not wanting to do it, and then afterwards feeling guilty about it. But one of the strategies that was Satan was using in their lives, and he's used in my life and probably yours, is isolation. When he gets us alone, when we think we're in the safety of our own home, Nobody's looking, nobody's watching, nobody can see, and nobody will know. Satan has an easier attack with us. That's one of the reasons we come to church, because together we are much stronger than we are alone. And so these nine strategies in these two chapters we'll see, but we're going to look at the first four today. And I know you have this quote up there by Jack Rose. <laughs> Opposition can be your friend. Opposition can be the fire that tempers the better sword as well as the ice that cools a fiery temper. Don't ever run from opposition. Learn from it. Now, we're to flee from temptation and run to God. We know that. But that opposition can't defeat us in the Lord. It's, it's, we have to be careful where we're running. And so we're going to look at these four strategies together this morning. The first of which is ridicule. Ridicule has been called the language of the devil. He speaks it fluently and often whispers it into our ears. The same person who may bravely stand when shot at can just as easily collapse when they're laughed at. Think about it. You know, my, my brother's a warrior. My brother just got deployed this past week, and I'd ask you to pray for him 
and his family. I know the Trollinger's grandson just got deployed as well, and there are many others in here who may have loved ones that are uh, in wartime places today. Uh, but my brother can withstand a lot of things, and I think about him, but I also think when he's made fun of, when somebody ridicules him or mocks him or puts him down or jeers at him, the way that it evokes a response in him, that he wouldn't flinch in this situation, but over here he might, may very well. And we're all like that. Shakespeare called ridicule paper bullets of the brain. But those paper bullets have destroyed many a warrior. It isn't anything new for Satan to insult God's servants. Goliath ridiculed David. Jesus was mocked over and over and over again. The heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11 endured harsh mockery and abuse. But even as our enemies laugh at us, it's usually a sign that God is going to bless us in incredible ways. Why? Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 2. This is God. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Literally, God will have the last laugh. The Lord shall hold them, his enemies, in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. But blessed are those who put their trust in him. Sanballat, this major enemy of the Jews, began ridiculing the Jews before they even got started building the walls. In Nehemiah 2.19 it said, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite uh, servant and Geshem the Arab heard of this, that they were going to rebuild the walls, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? The first thing that Sanballat did to ridicule the enemy was actually what our second point will be here in a moment, but it was intimidation. He got his army. There were four major enemies of the Jews, and they could literally surround all the walls or the fallen walls of Jerusalem. And these enemies, kind of like if you've seen in an old movie, you see some cowboys out in the desert, and you see this Indian war party that's up on top of the cliff, and they're all aligned, standing one by one in this profile, and you look up and you think, man, it's lost. All is lost. And I can very much picture this scene with the uh, enemies of the Jews standing around the city kind of showing their display of power. They're mocking, taunting, ridiculing, trying to intimidate before the work even begins. But then in verse 2, Sanballat calls them feeble Jews. That's an attack on them. The enemy couldn't see the Jews' spiritual resources. This is a cool thing, guys. The, The world looks at you and I and they think we're weak. Because we have to use the crutch of God. Or we have to sing praises to Jesus because we have faith in him. And the world literally looks at that and thinks that we're not strong enough to make it on our own. And praise God, we're not. But they didn't understand that the Jews had the God of heaven and all spiritual help on all sides. Defending them, protecting them, and encouraging them to do the work. The world can't see what or who better lives within us and the victory that we have. They may look at us and think weak, powerless, unable, but inside we are all the more strengthened because our weakness is perfected with God's strength. And I love that. In God we have more than anyone could ever know, and we can take great heart in that so that no matter what anyone says against us, we can let them laugh. Because we know who our God is and what he's going to do. I have a long passage that I want to share with you. And I'll try to get through it as quickly as possible. But it's important, okay? There's a lot of words in this that may hit your heart this morning. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
verses 18 through 31. Do we have those, Steve? Yeah, good. I'm glad that you can see these with me without even having to turn in your Bibles. Remember this. This is what the world thinks about us, what they think about Jesus, what they think about God. For the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I'll thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through true wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those of us who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Those are powerful words. Sanballat ridiculed the work itself. Uh, I'm not going to go into the questions that he, all the questions that he asked, but there in that first part of the passage that we read, he, he, he asked three taunting questions. And one of the questions that he asked the Jews out loud was, will they sacrifice? You see, Sanballat didn't know the God of heaven. And he was calling into account that this same God who had left the city in ruins for the last however long, how many decades or, or century or so, that this God was going to do anything now. He saw God as non-existent. And if he was existent, that he was too weak to rebuild his city And all he saw was the work of these feeble Jews, he called them. And he said, listen, they can't do it. What are they going to do, sacrifice to God, a God that doesn't exist? This called into opposition the power of God. There was no belief in God's strength or power. Will they worship a God that doesn't exist? The crazy thing about this is, guys, is that the world as a whole, I I know what the Gallup poll said, 90% believe that there's a God that exists in America. But the majority of people, if they do believe that a God exists, they have never experienced his power in their lives like you and I have. They don't know the strength. They don't know the blessing. They don't know the protection or the hope that we have. And so these were taunts aimed not only at God but against God's people. And here's the crazy thing. When, God, when an enemy attacks one of God's children, we know this is true, Though sometimes we forget it. When the enemy attacks you, it is an attack upon God himself. God will take care of his children. Sanballat um, didn't believe that the Jews knew the magnitude of the task they were attempting. He believed that they would soon quit because the work would prove to be too hard. Sanballat even ridiculed the materials that they were using. 
saying that it was trash, that it was rubbish, that they'd never rebuild with that sort of material. The funny thing is, is that Jesus Christ was also called a stumbling block, but we know Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone upon which all else rests and lives. And so our enemies don't know what we know. Tobiah, his friend, joined in on the ridicule and said that even a fox would run across the top of the wall and it would fall down. Somebody needs to hear this today. You may be weak and poor. Your resources may be meager and paltry. Your work may be daunting and hard. People may ridicule you and laugh you to scorn. But you are not defeated. Not when God is in your heart and in your work. You have the God of heaven standing behind you, just as these Jews did when they were rebuilding the city. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church, neither will they prevail against you or I, because we are the church. How did Nehemiah respond? Love this. He prayed and asked God to fight the enemy for him. Prayer is a powerful weapon against the enemy. It evokes the power and wrath of God as he stands on behalf of his children. Listen to what Craig Rochelle said. The best way to respond to critics, haters, naysayers, and doubters is to ignore them. This is what Nehemiah did. Your response isn't going to convert your critic. The only thing a response does to somebody who ridicules you in this way is validate them. When you acknowledge your critics, you actually give them power. They're not actually that important if you don't respond. Instead, we're going to the will of God. We're going to stay above what they say. Love that. You don't have to respond to your critics. Nehemiah didn't. He didn't stoop down to their level. He didn't let the ridicule of the enemy detour him from the work that God had called them to do. He didn't continually, I mean, he may have, we all do this. Somebody says something bad about you. Somebody calls you a name. Somebody uh, ridicules you. Man, if you're like me, there's this continuous loop in your head. You can't even go to sleep at night because you keep replaying that. And it just makes you mad and it, it makes you sad and it makes you all these other emotions happen in your lives. But the truth is, all Nehemiah did was he said, God, you got this. You're bigger than them. Crush them. And then the next thing he did is he turned around and they went back to work. I can picture him stopping to pray and he's kneeling down and then he turns around and they're clearing the debris away from the wall and picking up another stone and just going back to it. That's exactly how our response should be. I spend so much time on this point of ridicule because I believe a lot of us face it in our lives. The things people say to us and about us may hurt us, but here's the truth. They can't harm us unless we let them. If we'll immediately turn those things over to God and allow him and his promises to fill us, we can walk away from the harmful things said about us. The best thing to do is to pray and commit the whole thing to the Lord and then get back to work. Anything that keeps us from doing God's work will only help the enemy anyway. The second strategy of Satan, the rest of these are much, much shorter. The second strategy of Satan is intimidation. We saw this in verses 7 through 9. Here's the thing. Satan hates godly progress. He hates it in your life, in the life of the church. You know, sitting in here amongst us today, there are at least five, at least five couples that I have been able to see and some I've gotten to speak to so far that are visiting with us. And there may be a whole lot more, and I, I just haven't got to see you or know you yet. But here's the beautiful thing. Over the last several months, God has continued to bless us with salvations. We've seen an entire family uh, come to salvation and be baptized. God has continued to allow babies to be born into our midst. God has continued to call people to step up into roles in which they may have been uncomfortable or unfamiliar with to meet the need of the church. 
God keeps working. We are not defeated. We will keep going forward in faith. And so this strategy that Satan tries to use against this church and against us individually, against everyone, is intimidation. Satan's always trying to frustrate the plans of God. And we've got to remember that our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against satanic powers, against Satan himself and demonic forces that often use flesh and blood to accomplish their work. The Jews didn't have much. They had a few tools and some weapons. They had some swords and spears. But they were ready to wield them both, to build and to fight. And I wonder if we are. Will we use what God has given us to act on our faith? You see, if you hope to win, you must see and use the spiritual equipment that God has provided for you. You and I may be able to beat our physical enemies based on our own resources. We may be able to outwit them. We may be stronger than them. We may be able to overcome them somehow. But we will never, not a single one of us that are here today, be able to beat our spiritual enemies and Satan himself without using the resources and the armor that God has equipped us with. We need that. We can't beat him on our own. So we are dependent upon the Lord. Not only does Satan use ridicule and intimidation, verse 10, he uses discouragement. We know that the stuff from outside often causes the biggest problems within It's hard to carry out our work when we're always afraid. Satan knows that if the Jews and us as well become discouraged, we'll lose hope. If we lose hope, we'll often quit. And if we quit, we defeat ourselves. Don't give in to discouragement, but give voice to it as you bring it before the Lord, because he will uphold you. That's his promise. I can't tell you how many times I have, and you could probably testify as well, I have felt so intimidated. I've been so scared to do anything at all. Uh, literally, I, I'll sometimes tell my wife on a Sunday morning when I wake up, I'm nervous today. I, 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 I said it this morning. I, I'm jittery. I, I don't know why, but I, I just feel, I mean, it's a powerful thing to hold the word of God before you guys and to try to feed the flock and to equip you as saints and, and to encourage you and charge you forward. I don't want to mishandle the word of God. It's such a, a, a weighty task. But sometimes the enemy gets in my head and he's thinking, and I'm already thinking, man, that's not going to be any good. I'm not going to be able to say it. Something's going to go wrong. And I start whipping myself before I've even started. And when that happens, My only defense, I'm not telling you this is some spiritual superpower because I'm not. My only defense is to get down before the Lord and say, God, here's my heart. I'm scared today. God, I don't know if I have the right words to say. God, I don't know if I can do this well. Lord, I'm tired. Lord, whatever it is. And I say, please help me provide, strengthen. And God always comes through. It's a testimony of his faithfulness. The last strategy that Satan uses against us is found in Nehemiah 4 is fear. This is number four. We see this all throughout the rest of the chapter from verses 11 through the end, verse 23. The people kept hearing rumors of more attacks coming, and they were afraid. Nehemiah's recourse, he just kept praying. He didn't waver when he saw his people getting afraid of what might come. The reason why Satan uses fear as such a powerful tool against us is because when one person becomes afraid, they get discouraged. And this discouragement will also, will oftentimes uh, become contagious. We infect others with our fear just as we can infect others with our faith. It's a quick defeat when we all get afraid and we're too afraid to move. 
Fear is a sin. I think this is on the screen. This is important. Fear is a sin to be afraid because it distrusts God. It's very much the antithesis of faith. A little fear like a little sin leavens the whole loaf. You let a little bit of fear creep in, and we're not going to do any Yoda-isms this morning, all right? We're we're not quoting uh, Return of the Jedi, but fear is bad. How do you overcome fear? It's only through faith. We need the faith to stand strong. It's not faith in ourselves. It's faith in God and his power and might. God's weapon against fear is encouragement and his promise and his word. He uses you and I to be vehicles of encouragement and edification for each other. God is always strong enough to meet any challenge, and his promises are always yes and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we face a situation that creates fear in our hearts, we must remind ourselves of the greatness of God. Has he failed you before? Never. Will he fail you now? Is he going to abandon or desert you? Is he going to leave you alone? God's promises are no to those questions. Fight fear with faith. The last thing, you might want to write these down. This is easy. Here's the strategy of victory. For them and for us. This is the summation of this whole chapter. What did God give them to fight against the strategies of Satan? A mind to work, a heart to pray, an eye to watch, and an ear to hear God, to hear his promises. And this gives victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. This is a portion of that verse. But therefore be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the Lord. Would you pray with me? As our musicians come up, we're going to have a moment of invitation. Then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And guys, I pray as we bow our heads and maybe you close your eyes, maybe you keep them open, maybe your position of prayer is different from the one around you. The key thing is here is we focus together on the Lord. You heard Brother Randy's prayer this morning. Unity. Unity. Father, Lord, there are many of us who have come under scorn and ridicule. We've been mocked and jeered by physical enemies and spiritual enemies alike. We've been intimidated, Lord. And Lord, a lot of us are afraid as we sit in here this morning. We're afraid for ourselves, for our jobs, for our financial situation, for the state of our children in this dark world. We're afraid of our health diagnosis. We're afraid of lots and lots of things. God, I pray that one of the true marks of common faith is that we would believe and trust you and that we would obey you. So, Lord, if Satan's attacking anyone in here today, God, that they would know that Satan is a defeated foe, that he cannot overpower or overcome our God, that the victory is within a prayer's call, that we would call and cry out to you, that you would defend us and support us, encourage us, rebuild us, strengthen us, and show your mighty hand to be greater than anything this world or hell can throw against us. God, we trust you this morning and we commit that as a people. As we're about to go before your table to partake of the Lord's Supper, Lord, we're reminded of your strength day by day. And we pray that even supping together, Lord God, and having this moment of fellowship, would remind us that you're coming back. You don't leave us here. We're not alone in this. You've got us. You're in control. And we commit that to you this morning, Father. Lord, we ask that if you're working on anybody's heart this morning, maybe it's for salvation, they need to come forward.
Maybe they need to be baptized because they've been saved but never followed you in baptism. Maybe they need to join with us in this church. Maybe they need to rededicate their lives. Maybe they just need to confess their sins. Maybe there's something else in their lives that's heavy on their hearts, God, that you'd allow the Holy Spirit to have free reign to move, that you'd move your people to you. We ask this in Jesus' name.